Welcome to the Supplement Engineer Podcast. My name is Robert Chinesky. Joining us, industry veteran, R&D expert, formulator, and the proud owner of over 60 awarded patent claims and one of the fathers of the revolutionary new 3D pump breakthrough, Mr. Bruce Neller. How are you, Bruce? Uh, hanging in there, guys. Uh, hanging in there, Robert. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, so we've had you on the podcast before. We had a, a lengthy discussion on kind of what the, the thought process was. Are you working with your, your partners, Tim and uh, Hector, on right. creating 3D pump breakthrough? And we went into some of the machinations of getting a pump ingredient awarded. The trials and tribulations y'all went through as far as developing the ingredient, testing the different botanicals that you paired with the citrulline and the glycerol. By the way, um, just real quick. Yeah, we have enrolled our first subjects in our 30 person study, the 3D pump breakthrough. We're comparing it against eight grams of uh, vegan source citrulline head to head, double blind. And it's a crossover study. So both 30, uh, the 30 people are going to get 3D pump breakthrough. They're going to do a workout. We're going to do a bunch of measurements, blood markers and stuff like that. Yeah. They're going to wash out for, I think it's seven to 10 days and come back and, mm-hmm. and get the citrulline afterwards. And we'll, we'll compare uh, a dose of 3D pump breakthrough to eight grams of citrulline, which um, what we're hoping for is uh, non-inferiority. Mm-hmm. So as long as it's as good as eight grams of citrulline or better, I'll be happy. But you never know. It might even be better. If, if that's the case, I think it'll be a big deal. But it took a long time to get this done. Um, clinical research is just slow. You have to write the protocol, submit it to the IRB. They come back with comments. They want changes. They don't like this. They don't like that. A lot of people, and it's expensive, as you know, right? I mean, right. You know, you're talking about, six, seven figure money to do it, to do a study. Right. So uh, we finally got this thing moving. It's all set to go. Uh, I think, um, you know, there will be plenty of money morning quarterbacks to say, well, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that in the study? You know, uh, part of it is IRB won't approve it. Um, Mm -hmm. I got into it with somebody online a little bit. Uh, They wanted to know why um, they want a creatine study. didn't do muscle biopsies, fine needle aspirations. I'm like, because no IRB is going to let me, take a, a, an 18 gauge syringe and stick it in your thighs. Like, you're just not going to, it's, it's not for a dietary supplement. They're not going right. to, no, it was liver biopsies. They wanted to see if, uh, if, if, why, why can't we do liver biopsies <laughs> to see if, if this stuff really works? And I'm like, because no one's going to agree to do it and no physician is going to want to do it. And it's unethical. So I, I, again, we did the best we could. I think the study is robust, um, from a statistical thing, but, um, a statistical standpoint, it's, it's, you know, a decent sized study, 30 people is pretty good size for our industry, maybe not for pharma, but for, for us it is. And uh, we're just trying to show, you know, statistically significant um, data. And I'm looking forward to that wrapping up, I hope, by the end of the summer. Uh, then we'll crunch the data, do the write-up, and uh, get it published in a peer-reviewed referee journal. And hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get non-inferiority or even if we're lucky, better results, which I think would definitely, you know, uh, be good for the industry because you'll have something, you know, some, some something to put their teeth into rather than like anecdotal stuff. Well, citrulline, glycerol, and amylo, we know they all three work, okay, but do they really work better together? Well, you know, now we'll uh, have, have some way to correlate that a little bit better that's more independent and whatnot. But I'm sorry to steal your thunder. It, 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 oh, get that out there. no, this, that's, that's kind of the goal is I, I, I just – Duck in little things here and there. And like, if the guest wants to talk for 50 minutes of the 55 minutes we're on the podcast, <laughs> all the better, all the better. I'm sorry about that, buddy. No, no, no. But so like, uh, they actually brought up a couple of other questions that I want to ask you and we'll before, and we'll, we'll get into those now. And then the, the original sure. topic that uh, caused me to reach out to you in the first place, we'll, we'll push that towards, you know, down the road a little bit, a couple things. 
the the liver biopsy with creatine is really like you could measure that by just measuring liver enzymes by taking a blood sample. You don't need to biopsy somebody's liver to see if it's hepatotoxic. It was actually now that I think about it, it was a guy that I was talking to who wanted to see. Uh, he had he had a, he had a bone to pick with uh, exogenous ketones like the ketone salts and esters. Yeah, and he's like, well, do they really put you in ketosis? And I'm like, well. Yeah, I mean, according to the definition of what ketosis is, is it's a blood ketone level of more than what is it X? He's right, like, yeah, yeah. But you're not not endogenous ketones. I wanna I want a liver biopsy to see if you're making your own. I'm like, well, you, you don't you don't understand how clinical research works. A liver biopsy is a very invasive and somewhat risky procedure, and no no physician's gonna do it, and no institutional review board or institutional ethics committee is gonna allow it for a dietary supplement now. If, if I had a, a chemotherapy drug to, to cure a liver cancer, that's a whole different story, right? I Absolutely. mean, you can get a liver that, but for a dietary supplement to help people lose weight or, or feel a little bit more optimized or energetic, they're going to look at me and say, so people got to understand it, that um, there, there's a lot of things that, you know, in, in clinical research in the dietary supplement realm that we'd like to do, but we can't because it either costs a ridiculous amount of money or just ethically, um, I mean, you could do it, but then because it's not IRB approved, you'd never be able to publish the data in a peer-reviewed referee journal. So, you know, what good is that, right? So, I, I mean, yeah. you, you need that stamp from these an independent, you know, board to review your your work to make sure that you're not exploiting. Um, I mean, poor college students, basically, that's who signs up for these things, sure, right? Sure. You're, you're not going to hurt them, and there's, there's no unnecessary risk. So I think that, that, like, muscle biopsies or some of the more invasive tests that could be done uh, are not going to happen uh, very often in our industry. Mm-hmm. You're going to be limited to, you know, blood tests. Uh, you might be limited to, um, you know, clinical measurements. Uh, you might be able to do some, some X-ray kind of stuff, you know, scans like that. But anything yeah, dexa, body bioelectrical yeah, right. analysis stuff, like that. Kind of stuff uh, you know, uh, anchored, you know, a Likert scale kind of stuff, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, any kind of like if you're working on a nootropic, you could, you know, you know, judge reaction time or the uh, short term, you know, cognition and stuff like that. Those are the kind of things that you're going to see the non-invasive stuff. But you know, if you were, if you were trying to to do a, a study of nootropic and you wanted to do a brain biopsy to see. Just- I mean, it's just not going to happen. I mean, people just go, well, why not? I'm like, well, yeah, okay, let me crack into your skull and take a turn. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, so, I mean, we have to have, I guess, uh, we want clinical research to substantiate structure function claims when we can, but we also have to temper that with, uh, you know, sanity and reason and, and what's legally and ethically, you know, you know, okay. But I'm really happy we got the study going. Um, you know, we, 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 I don't, I can't release it yet, um, you know, what's in it, but we really went above and beyond with it. Not just the, the biometric kind of assays like, okay, you know, do 50 curls and we're going to measure your arm and see which side, you know, which one's bigger kind of, you know, like that. Yeah. Not just the taxes, but we, we looked at a lot of uh, inflammatory markers uh, that were expensive to do to see, you know, does this stuff have any effect a day or, or post day with, you know, uh, reducing inflammation or, uh, mitigating, you know, uh, delayed, you know, muscle soreness or things like that. So I, th- I think overall, most people that look at it are going to be like, what, what, what's all this stuff? I, we, don't, we don't know what this is. 
But when they see the, the other stuff, they'll, you know, the, the stuff that everybody knows, they'll be like, well, that's pretty good. And of course, there's always going to be people that are going to be you know, Monday morning quarterbacks. So why didn't you do this? Or why did you do that? Or why did you do 30 instead of uh, 50? One thing we did do, I'll tell you, mm-hmm. uh, that I will let out of the bag here, is we're trying very hard out of the 30 people to recruit a, substanti- a substantial subset of women. Okay, cool. Yeah, because most studies are done in men. I mean, the vast oh, every study in our industry is done in, in guys 18 to what, 50, 18 to 35, right? Yeah. So we, we said, um, you know, guys, um, it, it really, really in order to do it right and to be fair, because, I mean, women make up a huge portion of the uh, the, the fitness industry now okay they, they need a pre-workout they need they may want a pump product they may want to feel that too so mm-hmm. we, we are deliberately going to try to get uh as many women as we can ideally i'd like to get a minimum of 12 uh that doesn't sound like a lot but we only get 30 people total so you'd have like 12 women and, and maybe 18 guys but i mean i think that would make for a nice you know uh demographic group and again we're, again you know i don't want to sound like you know woke bruce because i'm really not but we're really trying to recruit across a wide demographic, you know, aged 18 to, I think, 50 men, women, um, all shapes and sizes and whatnot. So, we, you know, we definitely want to have a nice cross section of, um, you know, what America, if not the world, looks like. And um, I think going forward, that's another thing that, that you need to be very conscious of if you're going to c- conduct clinical research. You just can't have 18-year-old white male track athletes anymore. Because, I mean, their physiology and the way they react to things might be a little different than, you know, a 45-year-old, slightly overweight housewife. Correct. Can't say that anymore? House person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always use the reference. I, I, you know, I say, well, I want to be able to explain stuff in such, you know, easy to understand language out of soccer mom. And so I'm probably going to get canceled for saying soccer mom. Yeah. Well, well, you and I can sit in the cancel corner, right? You know, that'll work. Absolutely. Um, you, you touched on something that I've always wondered. So we always hear about when people are conducting sciences or scientific research studies, they have to be approved by the IRB. And I've always wondered, what happens if you don't have it, have it, you know, I mean, Dr. Lopez and Dr. Ziegenfuss have that research facility. They've got their own CRO. What if they just kind of gave the double middle finger to the IRB to said, Hey, look, we know People how to write a study. We're going to do it. Ourselves. Ourselves. Okay. So we did a pilot study on 3d pump. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was not IRB approved. And, and the, the, okay. the difference is this. Um, I'm not going to say you can do what you want because I mean, you could get sued by, you know, a test subject that they got hurt uh, and sanctioned in a variety of other ways by medical boards and, and, and whatnot uh, if you do things that are unethical. But you don't need IRB approval uh, if you're just looking for data to support like a patent or something like that. I mean, it's okay. nice to have. It just takes a long time right. and it's a nuisance. It's expensive, okay? Um, what IRB or if you're in Canada or an IEC does for you, what they stamp off on it, it means that um, somebody else vetted your, your, your profile and it looks – you know, by, by somebody else, I mean a committee, not like two big two guys. You know, a substantial amount of people, yeah. usually a, a PhD level biostatistician, some physicians, some professors in like say pharmacology or biochemistry and whatnot. Yeah. And after you make whatever changes or negotiate whatever changes they want, mm-hmm. and they sign off on it, when you collect your data and you do your write up, uh, reputable journals will be willing to at least consider your write up for publication. If you do a study and you don't have IRB or IEC or the equivalent in, you know, whatever China has, okay, if you did it over there or, or you know, Russia or whatever, um, 
no reputable journal would consider publishing your stuff. And if it's not published in a peer reviewed, you know, referee journal, uh, people kind of look down on it. Um, where it really counts more is in like big pharma and, and uh, medical devices, because if you don't get the IRB approved, you can't use that data to support your FDA licensing application. So that, that's why it's really important. Um, now, if we as an industry, this is a hot button topic. I know people are talking about having mandatory product listing. I know that Senator Dick Durbin, who I have no love for, I'll, I'll tell you, um, has been pushing that. I think he's yeah. just using more of a, you know, what about the children election kind of a posturing, yeah. Yeah, posturing issue. But um, I'm kind of getting to the point with the industry where I think that uh, I'm not ready to d discount it totally. I've had some friendly debates back and forth with, you know, Dan Fabricant, uh, Doug Kalman, who's one of the nicest guys in the world, really good friend of mine. Um, even a little back and forth banter with Mark Ullman uh, and, and some other folks, uh, you know, that are very active in the lobbying side and protecting side of the industry. And they're like dead set against it. And their reasons, I think, are conflating, you know, different issues. So, again, I'm not 100% for mandatory product listing, uh, but... It, I'm kind of thinking maybe we should at least talk about, um, you know, what's the upside of it. it? Everybody talks about what the downside of it is. And the, the downside is usually well, FDA already has a whole set of laws they don't enforce now. If we just give them more laws, they're not going to enforce them either. So what does it matter, right? It's Correct. done, right? Why, why add more laws? I mean, and, and I agree with that to an extent. I mean, I have, um, I think the FDA should drop the F because they don't care about food, man. They just care about drugs, biologic, domestic. They don't pay attention to us. They don't right. do any enforcement, really, with any teeth. Nobody ever gets prosecuted unless they're horrifically bad or it's just national news. It, it's, it's just rinse and repeat over and over again. Okay, So, yeah, I think FDA has to do a, a better job uh, enforcing the laws in the books. I'll never deny that. But mm -hmm. that said, if you look at Canada and Health Canada and how they do it, like you have to submit your – your label and all kinds of information to get your stuff legally. Yeah, the NPN, right. I don't think it's a bad thing, and here's why. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's funny because, you know, when I ask people why that won't, won't work here, they're like, well, we're not Canadians. I'm like, uh, that's kind of a, you know, a straw man argument. But um, people are looking, I think people are looking for more and more transparency in the industry these days. Uh, I mean, you're all over the place. You've got a better feel for that than me, but I think consumers – you know, they want to know everything that's in it. The, the days of the prop lens are kind of uh, are out the window or, or, or soon to be out the window. And not only that, they want to know, like, where did you get your ingredients from? Correct. Not only how much is it in there and who tested it. And they want all that transparency, okay? I think that if we had a mandatory product listing, okay, that worked. Mm -hmm. And I go, that might be in a hypothetical alternate universe because we know, that, you know, governments, our government doesn't really do anything effectively well, okay? But if we had some sort of listing, consumers could, like, say, scan a QR code or punch in a, a number like like an NPC number that's on a drug mm -hmm. and at a website, okay? And they could see, you know, okay, these are all the ingredients in the product, you know, including the, the we'll call it the, the inactive, the other ingredients. And these are where they were all sourced from. So as a consumer, I mean, I think I like that a lot. I, I would love to be able to, if I was shopping somewhere, pick up a can of, you know, whey protein, grab my phone, you know, scan the QR code and up will tell me, 
where it was made, when it was made, where the protein came from, where the cocoa powder came from, all that kind of information. I mean, that kind of transparency, I, I think it's added value and it shows, you know, uh, that you're not hiding anything or you're not doing anything wrong. So, I, I mean, from the consumer standpoint, I think having a mandatory product listing is not something I necessarily want to discount. Now, um, the other argument is, well, you know, uh, there are going to be people that are going to not do it. I mean, there are people that are just going to make products, you know, and and they're going to refuse to register it in a mandatory product listing. Yeah, I know that. I mean, I was in a, a brick and mortar in, in Pennsylvania. I'm not going to name the place. Mm -hmm. And um, this was like last week or maybe the week before. And they still got SARMs and peptides and all, all kinds of other stuff on the walls. Okay. And all the brands of stuff that they sell are like these like local brands that I've never heard of. Okay. Mm -hmm. And their prices are ridiculously cheap. And I'm like looking at like five pound cans of protein and their price for it. Like it, it, it costs less than what, like five pound, what, what five pounds of isolate raw would cost me. So I know it's not in there. So, I mean, there's always going to be those guys. You're mm -hmm. never going to get rid of the guys that want to try to like, you know, do things that are, are against the law. I sure. mean, perfect example, right? Fentanyl is illegal, okay? If you sell fentanyl and get caught, the DEA catches you or any other controlled substance, you're going to get prosecuted and go to jail, right? Yeah. Okay? Hopefully, that's enough of a deterrent to stop most people from doing it. But there's always going to be some people that are willing to take that chance, okay? Sure. And Right. So the same thing is with a, an MPL. I get it, okay? It's not, not going to be 100% compliance. Mm -hmm. But just because there's not 100% compliance with that is not a good enough reason not to explore it further. If we, the bigger brands, the more reputable brands, uh, the ones that get like NSF or informed choice kind of stuff like that, mm -hmm. okay, they're going to do it because, let me give you an example. If like a big a big chain like a, a Costco or Target said, hey, if, if your products, or even Amazon, that mm -hmm. that would be a big driving force. If Amazon said there's, there's a, a, a federal mandatory product listing and if you don't have an MPL number, okay, for your product, you can't sell it on Amazon – well, you just see how fast everybody, you know, would, would go to do that, right? Absolutely, right. right. I, I, I don't want to throw it out the window. Uh, I, I will say this: uh, Dan Fabricant, Doug Kalman, Mark Glazier, uh, Rick Collins, anybody else, if you, if you see this and you're listening, I would love to debate this topic with you guys. I mean, and I know coming from me, given my my, my somewhat checkered past, uh, you know, wanting maybe people say, well, you're not the right guy to push this forward. And I, and I would argue that I'm absolutely the right guy to push, push this forward. Because if you want to catch somebody or, 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 or think, you know, how are people doing things that, you know, are maybe um, not on the up and up? You want somebody who was, who was at one time maybe an expert at doing it. That's how you want to trick to her, right? I mean, right? I mean, how are people know, right? You want somebody that, yeah. you know, had to at one point in time maybe done some of these things, okay? Right. Right. So, you know, I'm a guy that would, and a few other people that I know in the industry, and you know too, I'm sure, they could, could point to things and say, it doesn't smell right. There's no way they could do it. Let's investigate further. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, that the more I think about it, uh, the more I'm leaning towards an MPL. Uh, I'm not 100% sold on it yet. I think implementing it and, and, you know, how rigorous it is would need to be worked out and agreed upon. We'd have to have some debate and commentary on it. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, a system like Canada has uh, would be a lot more beneficial uh, for customers in the United States than having, you know, the Shea and 
I think they issued yet another draft guidance document last week, the FDA. I, I, it, like Doug Kalman's a copy of it, and I'm on like a, 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 a chat group with him and a few other people. Mm-hmm. And what's on top of it is it says, it says this document has, is, is not for implementation. I'm like, so why would you would why would you release it if it's not for implementation? Like, what's the purpose, right? I mean, so what you're basically telling me is this is our, our opinion today, but because we're not implementing it, we could change our mind tomorrow. Well, how does that help me as a as a uh, manufacturer or a brand or a label or even as a consumer? So again, I, I get it. F, FDA is broken. That needs to be fixed, but that doesn't mean we we can't do you know more than one thing at a time. We don't have to fix FDA and then add new rules. We can fix FDA and add new rules at the same time. I mean, you know, I think yeah, you can do them in tandem. You don't have to do one and then the other. Right. You, you could do them in, in parallel. I, I hope we can walk and shoot bubble gum at the same time, but maybe we can't, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, that's how it goes. Yeah. Um, along those lines, uh, you're someone that has brought some of the, you know, more exotic stimulants to market. Mm-hmm. What are your feelings on... The, even things that have been around for a while, hygienine, hordenine, laxogen, and laxogenin, however you want to say that, on the FDA advisory list, it's like this on-again, off-again nature that it has. One of my clients called me. Mm-hmm. They got a warning letter for uh, laxogenin, okay? Mm-hmm. And it was the first warning letter they ever got. And, you know, I'm like, calm down, okay? You know, let's talk about what you're going to do. And what your company's going to do, and all that kind of stuff. And I couldn't understand why FDA went after laxogenin because what is there like maybe like 700 people in the country that actually use it? Right. Not exactly a big selling product. I mean, I don't, it's not that popular. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it was kind of an odd thing for them to attack. But as far as like hoarding and hygienamine goes, um, you know, I guess technically FDA, from a strictly legal standpoint, if you can't show that it's an ODI, Okay, there needs mm-hmm. to be some either either an NDIN that's been submitted and 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 well submitted anyway, or mm-hmm. you need to show somehow that it is uh, you know self-affirmed gross uh, according to the method outlined in the Federal Register. That doesn't mean the method you want. It means the FDA has kind of outlined that. A lot of people ignore that, by the way. I mean, there is a definitive method that's been published. This is what you need to do yeah. at a minimum. To self-affirm, and I hear people. Well, we, we self-affirm it as gross. I'm like, why? Because you looked at it, and it's you, fine. So, barring that, I mean, technically, hortonine and hygienamine are not dietary ingredients. So, um, you know, they've been around for a while. I need to look in, you know, some of the databases to see if there's a lot of adverse events or serious adverse events mm-hmm. that are at least associated with it. But uh, assuming there aren't any, uh, I can't see why. Um, they couldn't be fast tracked uh, for gross status or, you know, the problem with the NDIN aspect of it is it's really expensive to do. And like, I don't want to spend the money doing an, a new dietary ingredient notification for hoardening. So you can use, you know, you, you get right. to use it, right. You don't pay anything. So Correct. it puts me at a competitive disadvantage. So I, I mean, I mean, that's a problem. I, I don't, I don't think, you know, again, I'm speaking strictly, my opinion and anecdotally here, mm-hmm. I don't think low doses of hygienamine or hoardenine are particularly threatening to anybody. I can think of a bunch of other ingredients on the market, some of them legal and some of them not in the stimulant class that probably pose a bigger threat to uh, people's health than, than those two. But again, I mean, I, I guess it doesn't matter. I guess technically you're not supposed to sell them. And, uh, 
you know, that's how it is. I mean, the, 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 the industry's changed. I mean, back in, they, people call them the golden years back in, you know, the early 2000s where we just kind of sold whatever we wanted and Jedi mind trick the FDI, FDA, FDA agents when they came to bother us. Okay. I, I mean, I could tell you stories. You wouldn't believe how, you know, they, they really didn't want to be there. I, I almost feel like a lot of times that like FDA agents that do dietary supplement inspections, mm-hmm. like being punished, right? Like, <laughs> No, I really do. I was like, I, they really don't want to be there. You can just tell. They always come in pairs. I call them like, like Darth this, Darth that, because they're like Sith Lords. It's like one senior master Darth guy and one junior guy who doesn't say anything, right? Um, and um, they, they don't want to be there. You, you, you can tell. I, that's another problem um, that's, you know, it's germane to the situation, but uh, it needs to be addressed, I think, a little bit more by uh, the agency rather than us. It's like, how do you, how do we get, uh, talented and better agents to be field inspectors. Cause you know, all the, all the good guys probably go into OCI cause they want to be the, like the, the FDA SWAT guys. So we need better inspectors, more inspectors, uh, more frequent inspections and, and inspectors that are really familiar with uh, all aspects of the law and can't be, I'll say buffaloed <laughs> gotcha. really easily. So yeah, but you know, getting back to the stems, uh, you know, it, it's tough, man. That, that's it's one of those things. It's like I, I don't know for what rhyme or reason FDA goes after anything, but I will say this: okay, mm-hmm. it did make it public on their website that cordine, hygienamine, and laxagenin, and there were a couple of other things on there. Off the top of my head, I don't remember them. They're like, we don't consider these to be dietary ingredients, and they waited what like nine months before they took any action. So all these companies that you know got stung. And again, they only sent out a warning warning letter to what eleven companies. I mean, I would have sent out two hundred. Yeah, um, there's a lot more companies than eleven doing it. They, they could, I think they were just trying to make make some noise and help the little guys scatter. But they really could have sent out warning letters to like you know hundreds of companies. Um, all these companies should have known what FDA's position was. I mean, they didn't do anything for the better part of a year. So you had all that time to reformulate your product and did it. Well, you got a warning letter. Um, I guess the obvious question is, so what's the big deal about a warning letter, right? It's just a piece of paper. You just say, okay, I didn't do it and I'll never do it again. Uh, I think the big deal is that you could get sued by the class action guys. And um, this is probably not going to win me any friends, but I'm just going to be honest. Uh, You know, I'll work with class action attorneys that want to retain me. Now I'll choose my cases. Like I'm not going to go after a brand that, that like spelled something wrong on their label or it's some kind of accidental you know, trivial kind of, you know, infraction. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to play gotcha. You know, like yeah. I don't slack filling, you know, oh, you know, you use these containers and it was only a third full. Well, you know, there's a plastic shortage right now. It might have been the only containers you could get, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, with with COVID, I saw a lot of people selling and making antiviral, you know, drug-like claims and stuff. And I just wonder how many people uh, – either died or got really hurt because these, these, these idiots were trying to make fast money. So those people, I have no problem helping a class action attorney uh, pulverize into the ground, to be honest with you. And I like, I like to pulverize them to the point where they can't return to the industry uh, or they're, they're blacklisted. So, um, you know, that's, I I know that that's a little bit above and beyond your, your hoarding hygienamine laxogenic question, but yeah, I mean, you got to follow the law at the end of the day. No, agreed. Like, I think there are definitely certain ingredients out there that have beneficial properties that in cell cultures, animal studies, even in human studies have been shown to uh, 
reduce, attenuate the symptoms of this, or they may be shown in cell cultures to possess antiviral effects. Am I going to go and sell this as an anti-cancer supplement? No. I mean, if you're doing that, you you don't belong in this industry. You can say this supports your health. You can do that. Like, it's because there's knuckleheads, case in point, with a uh, knack and acetylcysteine going around saying it's an anti-hangover formula. Yeah, it's got some really cool uh, liver support benefits. I'm not going to go around and tell people, hey, man, this is going to cure you of liver cancer. I'm just I'm not going to do that. Anybody that is is being disingenuous and shouldn't be in the industry. So I agree with that 100 percent. So this is where I get to turn the tables on you. This has been a question I've been thinking about for years. And I asked um, one of the most educated, insightful, and smart people I know about this. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a kind of a little bit of a sigh. And he, he kind of deflected a little bit. I'm going to throw him under the bus here. He's a really good friend of mine. He's one of the nicest people. Rick Collins. Uh-huh. Okay. So what is it that dietary supplements are really supposed to do? Uh, fill in the gaps in what you cannot obtain through the diet, enhance and support the body to reach it to baseline or potentially a little bit above that, which okay, can be gained through diet alone. Let's get back to your antiviral thing. Okay. So if you've got some herb or something else that there's got a study in, we'll say murine models or cell cultures and, and it's, it's antiviral, um, why would somebody want to take it? What would be the reason they would want to use it? They're believing that it can help them recover from illness quicker or but, prevent them from getting but, illness quicker. But, but dietary supplements can't prevent or, or cure anything. You know, that little two-line orange block on every label, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I ask you, what, what do dietary supplements – like, you know, we, the, the, the definition is like walking through mud, okay? I mean, I don't really like structural function claims these days. I'm – really I get nervous about them because yeah. you could be making a claim, you know, by accident that's drug like. And I think yeah. part of the problem with, you know, what a dietary supplements really do is that the general public kind of wants them to be a, we'll call it natural, even though it's not everything's all natural, obviously. Right. They want to have a natural alternative, um, pharmacopendium that they can draw from on their own because they don't trust big pharma or biotech and they want to be able to, you know, go to a health food store or on the internet, buy some kind of quote unquote treatment or preventative measure uh, that they can use because they know better, even if they don't. And the problem with that is dietary supplements legally can't do that. They can't prevent, diagnose or treat anything. So, um, a lot of these structure function claims that people make come dangerously close and often cross the line, you know, and, and do just that. I, I see a lot of these things for uh, inflammation, right? Now, mm-hmm. inflammation that's associated with, you know, activities of daily living, all right. But, you know, if you're trying to say that it's good for arthritis or something like that or it helps with arthritis, you, you just made a drug claim, I think. Um okay. There, there, there's a, there's, you know, or, or even pain, right? You know, helps with pain. Pain, pain is a pathophysiological state. Okay, yeah. uh, people take heavy-duty medications to treat pain, right? We have a huge opioid problem in America because of that, right? So I, again, that's that's kind of like, um, I think we, I think we need a better definition of what a, a dietary supplement is and what we can and cannot say about that. 
Um, so something maybe you and, and your little crew, you know, uh, Lucas and, and uh, Mr. Sam Borsky might want to tackle one day uh, on, on your cool podcast is, um, you know, what really is a dietary supplement and how does it differ from an over-the-counter drug or a prescription drug or a medical food even, okay? And, um, you know, why do people get uh, dietary supplements, you know, so mixed up as to what's allowable and what's not allowable when I think it's pretty cut and dry. Do you think that blame falls on the FDA since they're the ones classifying what dietary supplements technically can say and what they can't? Because it makes it really difficult for me. Like you mentioned the structure and function claims. As, you know, I do a fair amount of product pages and stuff for different brands in the industry and writing. And, you know, five, six years ago, I, it was just kind of like I would write massive pumps, helps combat, you know, supports healthy blood pressure has been shown to reduce cholesterol levels. And that is so completely neutered now. Everything is it modulate? Is, huh? Yeah, I use modulate. Modulate. What is modulate? Yeah. I say may support already healthy cholesterols in a beneficial range of like, I can't even say anything. I just want to write the ingredients. And if I was a brand owner, this is what I would do. I wouldn't even put a product page up. I would call the thing liver support, put the ingredient supplement facts, and that's it. I wouldn't even put benefits. I wouldn't do anything. It would be you and I think exactly supplement. like my, my yeah. advice to people is to make Claims that speak to what's inside the product, okay, yeah. and not to what the product uh, purportedly will do. Uh, that's where it gets you in trouble. And it's the FTC that really should be policing that along with the FDA, okay? Yeah. Uh, FTC definitely would have jurisdiction here too. Um, it, it, it's, just, it's just dangerous, okay? You know, you know, one of the things I do when, when I assess structural function claims for, for, you know, clients that I work with mm -hmm. is I usually say, don't do it. You can make content claims, contains 25 grams of protein, contain, you know, this, that, or whatever, okay? Um, but don't say that it does anything, okay? You can say that it tastes good. It's chocolate, right? Yeah, great <laughs> I mean, tasting. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> chocolatey taste, rich, creamy, chocolatey taste, okay? Um, but I really wouldn't really make too many claims as to anymore uh, as to what you think it's going to do for, for the person. Um I think most people already know why they want the product anyway for the ingredients. Uh, they're, they're, most people are fairly, certainly in sports and nutrition, they are. I mean, in general health, you know, they may not. Somebody buying something in a pharmacy, you know, for, you know, joint pain has no idea what, you know, glucosamine or uh, any of those things that, that are in that family, how, how, you know, curcuminoids work. They have no idea. Okay. But most of the folks in, in sports nutrition, you know, they, they kind of know what they want. You don't really need, to, I don't think you need to make those claims. Uh, not anymore. Back in, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you did. But now I think the, um, the consumer is a little savvy. But mm -hmm. I, I definitely think that we, we, could, we, we could say the FTC needs to enforce it better. The FDA needs to enforce it better. And the industry needs to enforce it better. Because let's be honest, right? If I make a claim that's a little bit like maybe on that line, it's not mm -hmm. really over the line, but it's, and nothing happens to me. Well, maybe the next time I update my label and change my formula, maybe I will cross that line. And if I do cross that line, you know, and I don't get penalized at all, and it helps me sell a product, you know, unfortunately in this industry, there's a lot of people that are going to do that. And, yeah. you know, again, I, I don't like the, the, the ones that bother me, uh, the, the, the cholesterol claims, the, the diabetes claims, the cancer claims, the viral claims, stuff like that. These, these are things where people could really get hurt. Mm -hmm. okay? I mean, if you 
for whatever reason are convinced that, you know, you don't need to see an oncologist or you want to augment what you're getting from your oncologist, a hematologist with some, some herb somewhere because some company is citing a, a you know, a, one study that it may cure, you know, you know, chronic myelogenous leukemia. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to see that. That, that. that bothers me, especially now. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. 20 years ago, I didn't care. Yeah. But, you know, now that I'm a little bit older and, you know, I've got kids, I admit it, my, my opinion has changed a lot uh, about the industry over the last, we'll say, five years, yeah. seven years. Um, I think for me, honestly, the big change was um, – or I said, this is really, you know, like just wow. I had that. I had that like like lucid moment was uh, during uh, DMHA. Yeah, for, yeah. That for me, that was the the the, the like. I, I can't believe that, you know, this is. So I mean, I mean, you know, I was you know involved. Quite I was say you were one of the first people to bring it to market, if not the first, and I think it was. Yeah, that was the first guy. Right. So somebody else who probably doesn't want me to mention his name had a different version of it. Uh, he had the, the, the five and I, I had the six. Okay. Um, what I tried to do was I, I, I found the company in uh, Zhejiang province, China to, to synthesize it for me. So it was, it was synthetic and it was a salt. It was a hydrochloride salt, which is obviously not naturally occurring. Um, now there are some instances where FDA, if you look at the draft guidance document, will allow you to use salts and esters of things if the hydrosoluble, and they don't consider that to be chemically altering the substance. But without splitting hairs there, it was synthetic, okay? When I imported the material, okay, I always imported it as DMHA hydrochloride. It had correct cast number on it. All the paperwork was correct, okay? I didn't pull any of that crap where, okay, well, I'm going to have the guys in China label it as creatine or leucine in a, in a drum, and it's, when it gets over here, I'll put a different sticker on the barrel. It came in that way. Like, all the paperwork was legit. I paid the, the correct tariffs on it, okay? Um I didn't sell it to anybody and warrant that it was a dietary ingredient. Okay. I just said, I'm just selling this chemical where is as is, and you need to indemnify and hold me harmless. Okay. You need to be responsible and you need to decide whether it's legal to use for whatever intended purpose you wanted to use. Mm -hmm. um, that scared off a lot of people, obviously, but the, some of the people who knew what it was were like, yeah, like we're going to do what we want. Okay. It, it horrified me that, uh, a lot of companies would buy, you know, pure comp compound for me and then forge a COA or, or I'm assuming they forged a COA or at least they relabeled it somehow as an herbal extract when I knew it wasn't. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, you know, that's, that's not cool. The other thing that happened a lot, and I think Peter Cohen in one of his um, publications kind of outed everybody was um, DMHA was expensive. Uh, you know, when, when it first came out, because, you know, you know, that R&D cost we had to recover. I had to recover. I mean, we're talking hundreds of dollars per kilo. Okay. And a lot of people didn't want, yeah, people didn't want to pay it. And um, other people that were less scrupulous in China had a lot of leftover uh, DMBA. Remember that mm -hmm. guy? Amp citrate. Good stuff, man. Amp citrate. Uh, right. So what a lot of people over in, in China did was they just, relabeled DMBA as DMHA and sold it to these folks for, you know, like half the price that I was selling it for. And I, I, ha I have these discussions with people all the time. You know, I'm like, you need to test your product. 
And they're like, oh, we do, we do. I'm like, there's no way you could be buying it for this price because it's it's like 25%, 30% less than I pay for it, okay? Um, and I know my people that, that are making it. I don't know anybody else making it other than the people that I contracted with. I know they're not selling it to you for 30% less than they're selling it to me, okay? And right. you know what? Peter Cohen outed, you know, a whole bunch of uh, these stems that were labeled as having, you know, DMHA or whatever the herbal equivalent is. Uh, Erythopalum scandens or whatever it was, okay? Yeah, you know, Kigelia africana was one. Kigelia of them. Africanus, whichever Jones one. Regia was another one. Right, yeah. Stuff. Um, as really having DMBA in it. Um, and, you know, I kind of got a big snarky laugh out of that. I'm like, I told you guys, you, you needed to test it. Yeah. But the thing that really did it for me is after he published that, none of those brands got in any trouble. Like nothing happened to them. Like the FDA yeah. didn't do anything to these people. They were totally busted taking something that was already banned, putting it in a, a we'll call it a pre-workout or a fat loss pill, okay? Labeling it as something else. They got caught and nothing happened. Like crickets, man. So that, that that's when I said, this is, this, we need real structural change. Mm-hmm. That, that was a, a very, you know, lucid and crystalline moment for me. It was like, okay, um, it's it's just a matter of time before somebody really gets hurt, or a bunch of people get get, get really hurt. So, um, pretty much since then, I have a hundred percent walked a straight and narrow to the point where I think it starts to irritate <laughs> some of the people that I deal with. You know, yeah. you know, um, I actually thought about going to law school. Uh, I've talked to people like Eric Stump and and Rick yeah. and uh, a few other attorneys in the industry. To maybe do that and come out as a one man wrecking ball to start you know, filing civil actions against companies that are, that are selling garbage. But yeah. again, I'm not, I, there are people that do things by accident. Okay. And they're minor, you know, or, or, you know what, there are people that if you, like this, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's people that I've called on the phone that I'm, I'm civil with. And I'm like, you really want to think about taking this out of your product. And it'll be like, well, why everybody's using it. I'm like, but that's not the definition of what a dietary ingredient is. Everybody using it doesn't make it legal. If everybody jumped off the bridge, you heard that story when you were a kid, right? Would you do it? Right. So it's kind of the same thing. So, um, you know, a lot of them just didn't know the, the maybe the ingredients has been sold for a long time and they didn't realize it really isn't a dietary ingredient. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I like to give them a warning or a heads up, hey, reformulate it. And mm-hmm. a lot of them do. Some of them don't. But, you know, a lot of them do. I'm not looking to get those people. It's, again, the really – you know, over the top people, um, you know, that, that, that are doing things that are just problematic. Um, and now with the supply chain being what it is, and I wrote that piece for, you know, NPI, um, I was nervous when I wrote that because I thought a lot of people were going to come out and bash me. But I was pleasantly surprised that um, I got a lot of, of positive comments from um Quieter but bigger names in the industry, like like, like like people that you would, if you worked in the industry, you would know and respect immensely. You know, big company people, people that you know are, you know, occupy the C-suite of like you know huge companies, came out and said that that was kind of a ballsy thing you did. It's about, it's about time somebody sort of, you know, put that you know put that out there. So, uh, but there are problems now, and it's not just you, you know, not just with. Um, with the protein, it's with even amino acids and, uh, and other things too. People are taking shortcuts that, um, you know, I'm just scratching my head. I really am. 
you know, uh, I don't know how far you want to get into that. Uh, yeah, I, no, I think it'd be like, let's start with a, like a high level overview of the article for the, the average consumers that may not tune into these kind of insider websites like Natural Product Insiders, Nutri Ingredients USA. Uh, I guess let's give them a high level. Um, well, I mean, wrote, two articles. Really, I mean really it's good. my usual walls of text, war and peace, Tolstoy ass kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. But um, I just basically talked about my 25 years in the industry and some of the, you know, less than ethical, honest things that people have done, including myself. I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty as, as a lot of these folks are. Okay, I, I, you know, I have to admit that, you know, I, I didn't always do the right thing. Like I said, I'm trying to now really hard. Okay. Um, but even today, you know, we're seeing, you know, all kinds of things. And I think the takeaway is, uh, you know, these people that own companies are looking to make as much money as possible because they're companies. That's what companies do. And I'm not just talking about the publicly traded ones. I'm talking about the little little guy starting out, he's looking to make as much money as possible. Um, the level of greed in the industry is very high. People like flashy cars, vacation houses, you know, vacations in France and stuff like that. They like to eat at expensive restaurants. And a lot of, you know, companies, you know, company owners, executives are willing to, you know, do things that sometimes they're not illegal. They're just kind of scummy. And sometimes they're illegal, which by definition makes them scummy. So that's kind of what the article was about. As the price of whey protein has gone through the roof, uh, I think you're going to start seeing problems there again. Uh, and it's not just that, too. I mean, creatine, caffeine, and citrulline. Uh, you know, creatine is in such short supply now. Okay, that's going to be a problem for some folks, too. I think that what's happening is people are formulating down um, – to meet, you know, uh, a COGS price at, at a certain level. So if something used to cost, we'll say $5 to make, but it's $10 now, they're going to take out ingredients to get it back down to the, the $5 COGS level, and they're still going to sell it at the old price to the consumer. That could be reducing servings. It could be reducing or changing ingredients or, or maybe both. And obviously um, that's not good for the consumer. And I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, I'm waiting for the consumers to be like, you know, what the heck, man? I mean, last month this can had 30 servings, and this month it has 18. And it's the same thing, and I'm paying the same price. Like, what's going on? Why would I want to do that, you know? Or last month it had five grams of creatine per serving, and this month it has three. Or things like that, you know? So, um, it, you know, it's a problem. And, um, you know, that, that's kind of where I went with the article is I, I think we – always have to be concerned with everybody wants to grow their company. I mean, of course they do. Right. But I, I think, um, I hate to call it like a bombing run or a smashing grab. Um, uh, but I guess that's what it is. Some of the things that, that the companies are doing to reduce costs to, to maintain, or in some cases even increase, you know, their, their, their top and bottom lines. Uh, I just, it just makes me shake my head. You know, I'm just, I'm just kind of stunned. Um, a couple of them really irritate me. This, you know, I mean, it all irritates me, but a couple of them really, really get under my skin. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the protein has always been a problem. You know that. I mean, yeah. Going back to, you know, 2010, 2014, that, when it really blew up. Right. But I mean, I mean, not for nothing, but you, you can't use free form amino acids anymore because they're easily detectable 
And in some cases, like who would have ever thought that glycine would actually cost more than whey protein isolate now, right? Right, or, or, or things like that. So, or creatine, right? You can't use yeah. creatine anymore, right? It's like $25 a kilo if you can find it. So, um, you, you know, I think people are using, they're blending in uh, off-spec protein and lower quality proteins. And uh, there may be a little bit of, carbohydrate added in there because it tastes good. It's sweet. It's not going to adversely affect, you know, you know, the, the user experience for drinking it, but you know, they're doing everything they can to cheapen the costs. Um, and you really don't have to, because as I illustrated in the piece, you know, the biggest companies in sports nutrition are the protein houses, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, Glambia owns what, like five, six, seven brands. Okay. Then you get the guys from the premier diametize. They're making money on protein. So if they can, and they do it right, they have to do it right. I mean, they're, you know, reputable, equitable companies. If they can do it, then I think everybody else, you know, can do it too. Just learn to live with a, a little lower profit margin. I know that maybe makes me sound a little bit like Bernie Sanders and not a capitalist, but I just, uh, I, I think we're going to push it so far that the consumers are going to just be like enough eventually. So, uh, and, and one of the other things that I, I told you I had a really big, big pet peeve, um, uh, and, and I've been referring to it in conversation as the, the three C's of malification, creatine malate, caffeine malate, and citrulline malate. Uh, I have never, ever tested a sample of any of them where they've ever tested out as, as being what they're supposed to be. Now, I'm not going to say they don't exist. It's very possible there might be creatine malate or dicreatine malate as an ionic salt. It's very possible there might be citrulline or dicitrulline malate as an ionic salt. Uh, there's definitely not dicaffeine malate as a salt. Caffeine is a salt. If they form co-crystals. So I love when these people tell me we have we have dicaffeine malate as a salt. I'm like, it doesn't form a salt. It forms a co-crystal. There's a big distinction uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, you know, about uh, a co-crystal versus a salt. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so they're lying. But I think every every time I've looked at a sample over the years of any of those three, it's always been shake and bake. It's always been somebody saying, okay, I need to reduce the cost of my citrulline. So I'll buy cheap malic acid and I'll do a 50, 50 mixture and I'll call it, you know, citrulline malate or now with creatine, obviously. Right. You know, right, yeah. expensive. Maybe I'll, I'll mix in some, you know, cheap $5 a kilo malic acid with my $25 per kilo creatine and bring the cost down. And, and here's how you know, in my opinion, again, this is just my opinion. There may be a few brands out there that are able to source legit dicreatine or creatine malate or citrulline malate, okay, or even the real co-crystal of uh, caffeine and, and or dicaffeine malate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying unicorns don't exist either. I put for that, you know, because I haven't seen one doesn't mean they don't exist. It just Correct, means yeah. I, have, I haven't seen one in, you know, I've been looking for unicorns for forever, right? Um, <laughs> I, I think that if I see that on a label, mm -hmm. it jumps out at me and, and I'm just like, yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure that um, I trust the company. And that doesn't mean I, I'm saying the company's maybe doing deliberately things bad, that maybe they're being sold a false bill of goods. Um, I, I would question how they're doing identity testing on the raw ingredients too. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's very, it's inconvenient to test for salts and co-crystals. You need to use, uh, you know, X-ray diffusion, and, and most, most, um, you know, most co-packers don't have, you know, that stuff available to do. And I mean, 
Right. The whole idea of using like a UV or an FTIR wand uh, would only work if they had a validated sample to compare it against. So, um, and I don't think most of them would. I, I haven't seen a validated sample you could buy from like millipore sigma or spectrum of, you know, you know, dicaffeine malate or dicreatine malate or dicitrulline malate. So, yeah. but again, it brings the, you know, doing the shake and bake mixes the cost down. Here's where the real ringer is. Okay. If you were actually to make like any of those malate salts or co crystals, mm-hmm. it would actually cost you more money than just selling plain creatine or plain citrulline. Here's why. Hmm. I got an extra manufacturing process. I would need to right. buy, Say, say I was making creatine malate or, or citrulline malate, okay? Mm-hmm. That seems to be popular. I would need to take citrulline that I'd have to buy. I would have to buy malic acid. I would have to solvate them. I would have to get them to react. I would have to somehow pull that out of solution either with, uh, you know, like a, centri- a big industrial centrifuge or some mm-hmm. kind of, you know, way to, you know, distill all the solvent off, okay? Mm-hmm. And that would be very time-consuming and labor intensive, and I'd still have to buy all the other chemicals to do it. So I don't think you'd save any money. I think it would actually, I think, like, you, you see where I'm going with this. That yeah. extra step adds a substantial cost. So it doesn't really save any money. The only way it saves money, in my opinion, is if you're just, you know, taking powdered malic acid and whatever else it is, you mm-hmm. know, in a ribbon or a V blender and then putting it in a 25 kilo thing. So yeah. those, those in particular really you know, get under my skin. Now, again, I, I want to emphasize, there may be companies that have a legit source of this stuff and they mm-hmm. may have a, a real reason for putting those ingredients um, into their product. Um, I, 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 if they're sourcing real material and, and they're able to actually correctly identity test it to prove that it's really what they think it is, and, you know, hey, my hat's off to them. You, you've done a better job than I've been able to do over the last two and a half decades. So, um, but again, I'm starting to see that, you know, people, when I talk to them, they're like, hey, I can't get citrulline or citrulline is, it's come down a little bit. At one point it was like $30 a kilo. Now it's like around 18, 19, but still that's high. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard people say, I can't, I don't want to pay for, well, they don't, they don't say that. They go, I, I can't get L-citrulline. So, um I, I can get citrulline malate and it's the same price or less. What do you think? And I'm like, I wouldn't do it. Unless you can half the material for the same cost. Right. Which I'll, and you know, I'll ultimately have the results. I don't think, you know, if, if you ingest a couple of grams of malic acid, other than making your stuff tart tasting, I don't think it's got really any, any real physiological, you know, clinical benefit for you. Agreed. So kind of how I look at it. And the other thing is um, with, you know, dicaffeine malate, um, mm-hmm. again, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'm not even aware of any studies in humans on dicaffeine malate that have been published and peer reviewed that shows that it does anything, you know, above and beyond that regular cheap caffeine does. So like, why would you use it? I mean, like, why would, I mean, we know caffeine works. Mm-hmm. It used to be relatively cheap. It's a little bit more money now for a variety of reasons, but you know, at, you know, at a, at a reasonable dose, it doesn't add that much to COGS. I mean, why would you be looking for like an esoteric type of caffeine that doesn't really have a lot of or any published peer review data? I mean, the idea is that it will um, have a longer half-life. And I guess theoretically it, it should if, if it's a co-crystal. I mean, it's, you know, as long as you're not just dumping it in the water. I mean, if it was a capsule or a tablet, it would probably take longer to disassociate in your gut. 
Okay. Again, I'm, I'm speculating, but you know, I would be loathe and horrified if a brand I work with said, I want to make a structural function claim that we put, you know, dicaffeine malate in our product because it's an extended release caffeine. Well, you have, there's no evidence I'm aware of anywhere that shows that, that that's the case. I think, I think that it's either you're mistaken accidentally or you're being deliberately deceitful. Uh, you know, you know, and again, a lot of it might be that it's people that don't have a huge science background or understand these things. Mm-hmm. And just maybe they took a, you know, a, a co-manufacturer or a uh, ingredient seller's word for it. You know, they, maybe they got a, a slick advertising right. and said, oh, my God, this sounds great. And, and they never actually really source verify the, the footnotes in it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, again, in that case, it's an accident. You tell the person or the company and hopefully they, they change it. But some of them, you know, you know, obviously don't care. So, you know, that's a problem there, too. Um you know, even though we use an herbal product, you know, we use uh, Philanthus Oblica and 3D Pump Breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm kind of very nervous when it comes to putting herbals in anything. They're so difficult uh, to validate from an identity standpoint. And then when you mix them in with 10 other herbs and you have to do finished product testing, how do, you, how do you pull out exactly how much, you know, green tea is really in there, right? Correct. You see what I'm saying? It's, it uh-huh. makes it really, really difficult. So I, you know, again, that, my, my attitudes change wherever possible. I use I use pure compounds. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we did, um, boy, I, I mean, I, I drove Hector and Tim absolutely bonkers about this. It really did slow down our product. And, and they, mm-hmm. they agree with me. It's just a question of finding somebody who could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get our, our, our raw amylar, our philanthus oblicus in for testing, I mean, we had to actually find a lab that had the ability to pull – the actual low molecular weight tannins out of there, okay, and run HPLC on them mm-hmm. and get a pattern on it, like a fingerprint, so yeah. we could determine that it was really Philanthus oblicus and it was the same every time. And I will tell you this: uh, we we have a, obviously have a spec and an SDS. I mean, I've sent you, you you've seen the yeah, product, you've sent me all of the literature behind it on the product, right? I mean, yeah. it's like a, it's an inch thick, okay. Yeah. Um, out of all the assays we do on it. The, the testing we do in the herbal is more expensive than, than all the other testing because we have to do all that work, okay? So, and I'm thinking a lot of brands are like, you know, I, I really don't need to do that. No one will know. And right. FDA is not going to enforce it. They don't know. So, I mean, are you really getting the herb you think you're getting or are you getting the amount or are you getting the whatever it's standardized for? So that's why I get a, a little nervous with uh and I'm sorry we're all over the place here a little bit. No, this is this is a great conversation. I, I want to circle back to the dicaffeine malate because even when I got into the industry in 2015, I mean, I had had a, a cursory experimentation with different products like entering giveaways on bodybuilding.com forms or anabolic minds forms, whatever. And I came into the industry and I was under the guise that dicaffeine malate, you know, gives you this smoother energy experience. It, sustains the effects of so that's why you use a blend of caffeine anhydrous and dicaffeine malate and even like this is i I just learned something here like i thought dicaffeine malate they still they actually bonded the two of them together well they are so 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 okay so if so here's a homework assignment for you and i'm not being patronizing this is gonna this is gonna be very fruitful for everybody who's listening to this it's a challenge for everybody not just for you okay um go look up what a co-crystal is there, there are caffeine co-crystals, okay? There's a terastilbene caffeine co-crystal that's pretty good. Pure, yeah. okay? Pure caffeine, yeah. right. So it doesn't form a salt 
with um, like malic acid. There's also a prescription drug called caffeine citrate. Yeah, oh, citrate, yeah. They use it in babies, in neonates, okay, sure. that, that are in the, in the neonatal intensive care unit that have breathing problems, mm -hmm. apnea, okay? It, again, it's a co-crystal. Caffeine really does not lend itself to making ionic salts. Caffeine phosphate is an ester, okay? So if people tell you that, you know, dicaffeine malate is an ionic salt of caffeine, yeah, I'm having a hard time buying that. I mean, I don't want to come out and say it's 100% impossible because I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't have a degree in chemistry, but I, I just don't see, you know, we're looking at a caffeine molecule, like, like how it's going to salt out with, with malic acid or anything for that matter. Okay. Um, you know, maybe a super strong metal, you could have like a metal salt, like zinc caffeinate or something like that. Okay. But with malic acid being a relatively weak organic acid, I don't think it's going to happen. So what happens is, you get co-crystals forming and they're just, they're hydrogen bonds. The little hydrogens that are on the side of the rings, they, 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 they bond together. So you don't have like, look at an ionic bond, you don't get the full proton exchange. It's, right. it's kind of a, they, they form a crystalline lattice and a fixed uh, stoichiometric ratio. Um, there are advantages for using co-crystals. There are antibiotics and other products that pharma uses because, I mean, they work, they, I mean, they, they do have, certain properties, but I'm just not convinced that uh, in our industry that, you know, outside of the few that I know of, like, I, I think it was um, that the folks that make TerraPure, okay, TerraStoline, they came up with a, that, 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 that caffeine co-crystal, that's real. Probably caffeine citrate, which is a drug. Uh, I'm not sure that should be sold in our industry because it's a drug, but it's legit because it's, it's a drug and they use it in, in hospitals. Yeah. As far as, you know, dicaffeine malate, um, I'm sure you could form a co-crystal that way. I'm just not sure that it's being done. They're not that hard to make. I mean, you know, they're really not. I mean, it's just that I don't think anybody's doing it. And more importantly, find me a any kind of a study that's in a rep and not even a reputable journal, a, a peer-reviewed journal that that you know publishes. Find me a study that shows you know dicaffeine malate exists or does anything. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the whole theory or at least what, you know, it's kind of exists in the ether of the supplement industry is that it extends the life, the malic acid buffers or stomach, which may happen, but it extends the life of the caffeine and makes it a smoother so there's no crash. And I mean, these are other things that I, I've believed and written for product pages for different brands over the years just because, but, you know, the more you think about it, if it really is just kind of like they do with citrulline malate, where they take some caffeine and they put in, you know, a third or, you know, a fourth of malic acid to three fourths caffeine, because that's usually the ratio is 73 to 75% caffeine from, you know, 100 milligrams yeah, of they, caffeine they, malate. They weights and they figure out, you know, what it would look like if it was bonded. And that's what they, yeah, right. I get it. Yeah. So I wonder, but if, it, if it's really just that, then technically shouldn't that amount of malic acid also slow the release of the anhydrous? If, if this theory that malic acid is slowing the release of caffeine and making it more natural, well, then it should affect the, the 400 milligram dose or the 300 milligram yeah, dose. because you're anhydrous. getting more caffeine. Right. If so the malic acid is doing anything. Okay. Right, yeah. Okay. If the, other than making your stuff more tart. Okay. Uh, unless yeah. malic acid somehow interferes with the enzyme system that metabolizes caffeine into paraxanthine and whatnot. Okay. Yeah, and which I don't think it does. Theophyll, and I, I, I don't see it. I don't see it really happening. Okay. Um, you're just adding more. So, so how do you, so if you've got anhydrous caffeine, let's say 300 milligrams, mm -hmm. and I want to slow down the metabolism of that, I can add more caffeine to it, right? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, and that's, I, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's smoke and mirrors. I don't think, 
a lot of brands are doing anything malicious in the sense that they, I, I just don't think they know. I think some of the people mm-hmm. supplying it don't even know. How does that sound? I, I'm, I'm not even saying something. Agree. I think they're just they're being sold a false bill. The same thing is true with the citrullines and the and the, anybody who still uses creatine malate. I don't know anybody. I mean, it, I can't see anybody willing to give up any creatine to make that creatine malate. <laughs> I mean, the only one I can think of is like Rich Piana's 5% nutrition. I had like that creatine formula and it had 10 different forms of creatine in it. I think that's the only one I can think of that might still have creatine. Um, I it was left over from like a long time ago. I mean, back in the day, I mean, when creatine was, you know, $4 a kilo and it was plentiful, you could make any salt of creatine you want. Yeah. Now, uh, I mean, you can't find creatine and it's 30 bucks a kilo or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, the people that have it, they're just going to pretty much stay with monohydrate with one exception. Uh, you know, Ron Kramer sells creatine nitrate, which is a legitimate salt. Correct. And I will say without a doubt, Ron is regulatory, good as gold. I, I mean, perfect. His stuff specs out every single time. Uh, I used to buy glutamine nitrate from him. He made that just for me. I was a real pain in the rear end. I wanted my own amino acid nitrate. He did it. And uh, we tested the crap out of it. And his stuff always exceeded spec. It was, I mean, you can say whatever you want about Ron, but he sells a quality product, okay? Yeah. And he meets spec, and he does everything he says he's going to do. Um, sometimes it may not be the greatest thing, but but he does do he does do everything. So, he, so he's, in that sense, he's very honest, and I and I, I, I have the highest accolades for him. So outside of, like, creatine nitrate, because there are some brands that use it, and mm-hmm. he's probably able to source some creatine for that, the only other creatine that I would trust right now is monohydrate. Correct. Yeah. You know, all the other weird... I, I, I mean, even the hydrochloride stuff, um, there may be some of that still around too. Uh, I don't think that buys you anything over monohydrate too. Again, it's just going to add add costs. But, you know, mm-hmm. hey, so there are some brands that swear by it and some people think that you need less of it or it's got some, you know, partition coefficient benefits or, or, or whatnot. Um, yeah. You know, but, but again, these, these are the things that are happening now. People are looking to reduce costs and they're, they're trying to do anything they can. And you know, like I said, I had a, a brand. They're like, I can't, I can't get citrulline, you know, regular citrulline from anybody. But I could buy, you know, you know, dicitrulline malate for fourteen dollars a kilo, and I'm just like cringing. I'm like, I'm like, so how are we gonna identity test this? Right. Where? Where are we gonna do it? You know, you want me to send it off to, you know, a big analytical laboratory and spend four thousand dollars and and see if it's an actual, you know, crystalline salt or or what? You know. Um, and, and I, I guess one of the benefits, um, although some of my, some of my clients may not look at it this way, <laughs> some of them might want to punch me in the head, um, is if you ask me for my opinion, I'm going to give it to you and you may, I'm not just going to co-sign what you, you're doing if it's, right. if I think it's wrong so I can, you know, get my wire transfer or my check. So, you know, a couple of times I've been able to talk people off the ledge from doing something that is, um, dishonest and or you know illegal that way so yeah you know interesting i'm gonna i'm gonna start going down the malate wormhole and uh because that might change how i start looking at when it's really simple okay yeah. find me specifically with dicaffeine malate find me a study in humans or in rodents even yeah. any mammal Find me a study that shows that dicaffeine malate extends the half-life of caffeine. A published study. I, mean, I don't think that's too much to ask for, is it? 
No. If no, you're gonna make I, mean, that, I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. It does something, right? If, if you're making yeah. a structure function claim, right, you need to have some data to support that. Just yeah. find some data. Now, here's another one. Show me how or find out how how much it would cost and what equipment you would need yeah. to do identity testing on creatine, citrulline, and caffeine malate. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and let me know, you know if you think that most co-packers – would have this kind of equipment kind of hanging around in, in their QC, QA lab. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't think so. And again, I'm focusing on these, but there's other ingredients. There's so many other ingredients, you know, besides these malates, these putative malates that fall into the same category of, um, yeah, I, I'm having a hard time that that's really, really what you got. And again, having a mandatory product list would eliminate that because ideally I mean, again, maybe I'm living in la-la land. Ideally, some educated guy at FDA would look at your formula and say, okay, well, this this stuff is not a dietary ingredient anyhow. It's not an ODI. There's, there's no NDIN on it. It's not grass. And not only that, I'm not satisfied with your identity testing, so we won't list your product. So that would that would get a lot of, a lot of garbage off the market yeah. that way, right, just because you wouldn't be able to get a listing. Now, again, there are always going to be people that kind of sell it anyway, because there's always going to be a demand for it. But it's just going to take it out of the, we'll say that the main. You're not you're not going to see it on the shelf at, at Walmart or at hopefully at places like Amazon anymore. Correct. I'm probably having a lot of friends with this interview with you. You know that, right? People, people are probably like pulling their hair out. Like, Damn, it happens. It happens. Telling everything now, right? You know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, you just, you, you burn each bridge as you come across it. That's just, that's the way it is. But if, if you're trying to do things right, and like you mentioned, you used to do some less than scrupulous things, but you've, you've saw kind of the area ways and you're trying to do it. So obviously when that happens, there's going to be some areas and patches of friction. It's just natural, but well, it can, people can well, understand the knowledge and the intention behind it. They should well, be able to live well, with that one, one or the other. One of the things for me was this. Okay. So everything is a learning curve, right? I mean, yeah. you're not an expert until you learn, right? Correct. Uh, you may think you're an expert. Everybody thinks you're an expert, right? Uh, but so legitimately, there are very few people that I come across in history that I would say are, are truly experts in, in in a particular field. So Correct. You know, we'll, we'll go say back in like the early 2000s when, or even the 1990s when the pro-hormones were the rage. Mm-hmm. Okay. What a great word, pro-hormone. They were hormones, dude. They were steroids. Okay. <laughs> pro-hormone? Oh, yeah. Well, they convert to an act. Yeah, but they're still hormonal and steroidal in structure. Okay. That, yeah. that best moniker and again he won't want me to mention his name but we know you know i'm talking about the guy who coined that phrase he legitimately opened the floodgates and he was a genius okay and then the whole idea well well, this one's naturally occurring well so what it wasn't sold before 1994 and there's no ndin on it's not a dietary ingredient right you have no studies in humans or anything that it's it's safe or effective to use so it just kind of opened the floodgates and it, it go again it goes back to my expertise thing okay we weren't really experts in the Shea and the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act back in 1998, 2003, 2005. You know, we didn't really understand things, uh, what the law was really saying. And FDA, their agents, really didn't, they had even less, okay, um, knowledge we had. So, you know, we didn't follow the law, and they didn't really understand the law. So that led to a lot of things getting in the market that obviously today you could never sell. Okay. It was a different time. I'm not justifying it or excusing it. You know, I mean, 
I was in many cases I was just ignorant of the law, and that's not an excuse, as you know, right? I yeah, mean, correct. You have a strict liability issue. Okay, it's not an excuse. I'm just trying to explain, you know, what happened, and then I mean, yep. the lie. There were plenty of times where I knew some of the things that we were selling uh, or marketing, you know, yeah. would really be difficult to substantiate from a compliance standpoint, and we did it anyway, um, just because everybody else was doing it. That horrible jump off the Brooklyn Bridge metaphor. Um, I, I will say I always tried to sell things that I thought uh, had some margin of safety. I always tried to dose things as low as possible. Mm -hmm. But during the pro-hormone era, we had some really toxic stuff. I mean, you remember that, right? I mean, some of them were, were yeah. really M1T, dimethazine stuff. I mean, yeah. really, really, really nasty stuff. Methyltrienolone, which was I just horrible, horrible. Yeah, stuff. all of those orals were, were, were not friends. Right, right, right. They, they were, right. Well, I tried to sell an oral that wasn't uh, C seventeen alpha alkylated. If you remember the pro stenozolol, it was basically methylated or dealkylated winstrol, right? So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, that was again. I can only admit this because it's going back twenty years. <laughs> the statute of limitations is gone. <laughs> All right, but I mean, I mean, I, I thought that would make it a lot safer because you wouldn't have as many liver toxicity issues, and that was a popular product. But as time progressed, we learned. Um, I got to give this guy credit. He's going to be surprised to hear this if he's listening this long into the video. Okay. Um, a guy who was really smart. Um, he and I sometimes didn't get along. Okay. Uh, but I, I will give him kudos. He's really smart and he, on top of things, is Dan Pierce. Okay. When I was working, he and I were working together at a company with another guy, and he came into my office and he was like sweating bullets in full panic. Okay. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, they're going to shut us down. We're, we're, we're not compliant with anything. We don't have SOPs. We don't have any of these things. And all hey, he was all freaked out. And, and you know, I, I had already been through the whole warning little thing where they just basically, uh, okay, yeah, won't do it again. You know, <laughs> but he had it because he was new to the industry. He, he was right. all freaked out. But Dan really helped me um, and a few other people um, get educated because what he did is he found a bunch of uh, ex FDA enforcement guys and ex FDA lawyers that had founded a consulting firm that did educational seminars. And we actually, he actually got us on a train from New Jersey to go to Washington DC to take, you know, GMP, GLP courses. We actually, Dan and I learned uh, labeling law, you know, the green book really? yeah. from a woman who wrote labeling law. And I, I, they don't remember this. I had a really embarrassing moment. I humiliated. I'm such an idiot. I such a moment. We're sitting. We're sitting in this, this class about the labeling law mm -hmm. with this older woman who's who. I, I think her name is Betty. I can't think of her last name. But she wrote the green book on labeling, and um, she's saying, you know, this means that, and that, that means this. And I was getting aggravated because I didn't know who she was. And I raised my hand. I'm like, yeah, just who are you that you think you know you can interpret this for us? She's like. I'm the, I'm the one who wrote the law. You see this name on the back side of the book? That, that That's me. He <laughs> looked at me. He's like trying to like, like slide under his, under his seat. And I just, I had to put my foot out of my mouth, but yeah, yeah. Dan, Dan really, he, he definitely put me on the, the path of, uh, I really gotta, I gotta be up to date. And so, so Dan, if you see this, thank you very much. I mean, we, we've had our differences in the past. I know now we've buried the hatchet. Uh, but you definitely maybe see things in a different light. Uh, so I definitely, uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, 
and, and we and we did. So now, you know, when somebody brings something to me, even if I want to believe it, okay, I have to go. I hate that trust and but verify cliche, but that's kind of where I'm going with it. Is mm-hmm. okay. So you want to sell this? Um, here's a list of questions you need to answer first. Okay, and, and if you want, I'll I'll try to answer them for you. Well, no, if you pay me, I'll try to answer them for you. I'll go looking for support that you can sell this legally. Okay, and if I don't find it, I'm going to tell you that. And there are, I'll tell you right now. Um, I can't mention the company names or or the ingredients because uh, I am under an NDA. There are several products in diet. They're not well in in alleged dietary supplements. These ingredients are actually legitimate prescription drugs that actually had new drug applications, in some cases, multiple ones, filed with FDA and approved, okay? And they're on the market and sold as drugs by drug companies. And people yeah. put them in dietary supplements. Now, they may put them at a lower dose. They're like, well, you know, it's, it's found in an herb anyway, and we'll use a third of the dose as a prescription drug. You can't do that, man. You can't do it just because it's found in some plant, okay, and you want to use it because we know it works, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an RX drug. You, you don't get to do that, okay? Uh, I'm going after those guys. You know, you know, and I got, a, I got, a, I got a, a pretty good class action, actually group of class action attorneys that, you know, when I bring it to light and show them this, they're like, yeah, that, that's got to go because people could get hurt. Um, there's one in particular when we looked – it's a prescription drug that when I looked in the adverse event database at, at FDA, I mean, there's a huge amount of like, you know, serious cardiac of, uh, events, you know, stroke, you know, uh, myocardial infarction and death that are at least ca- casually associated with this ingredient, but yet it's still in the market. Okay. Do you and want to say the ingredients so for the listeners to look out for it or not? Is I that can't. Because I, because you know, I, I, I've been retained. You know, gotcha. gotcha. Okay. Right. 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 But th- there are, there are. I'll tell you this much: there's more than a half a dozen, more than a half a dozen. Okay. So again, what I don't understand is these people that sell ingredients. The first thing I would do is I would check with. It's, it's public knowledge. You don't have to pay for it. Yeah. How would you Google the ingredient to see if it's a prescription drug first? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you would think that, that that somebody in a compliance department. Some QC regulatory person at your company, your label, at your co-packer, if you use a co-packer, is at least got, I mean, you know, even if you're not a brand, even if you're just a, you know, a co-packer, okay, you you really don't want that stuff in your building, right? I mean, Absolutely, I mean yeah. you have an obligation as the regulatory, if you're like the responsible person at, at a co-packer, you have an obligation to the company and the law not to, I mean, to have these prescription drugs in your building. So, um, but they're not doing it. And part of the reason is lazy or they just make bad assumptions or they don't care. Uh, you know, again, or it's just been happening for so long that they're like, why would I bother checking? Well, yeah. you know, what? if you told me to formulate a product for you and gave me a list of ingredients, I would check them today. You know why? Because just because creatine was legal yesterday doesn't mean it will be tomorrow. Right. So things change. So you, ha- you have to be you know, vigilant about that. But uh, I-, I think the industry is going to have to change. Um, you know, I don't particularly like, you know, 21 CFR 111. I don't particularly like the multiple, I can't believe the draft guidance document. Like what an oxymoron that is. It, it, so is it a guidance document or not? Should I follow it or not if it's a draft and it says it's not binding? 
So, so, so like you see what it does. You're, you're like the deer in the headlights, right? Yeah. If I follow it, FDA may still say, well, you know what? We said it was a draft and it was non-binding and we changed our mind. And if I don't follow it, they could say, well, look what we published. So, I mean, the industry is a mess. It's, it's just a big, hot mess, and it, it, it really needs to be cleaned up. We need to really better define what a dietary supplement is and what its intents are for. Um, and we definitely need to start um, – you know, seeing ingredients that, or, or chemicals or drugs that are illegally being marketed um, that are dangerous uh, removed. You know, it's just, uh, you know what I said? You know what I saw in the market? I, I had this discussion a little bit with uh, with Dan Fabric in, on social media briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, Kratom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like Mark Bell over out in, uh, for Mark Bell's Power Project has been selling that stuff under his own. So, so here's my question, right? So, so uh, um, Kratom, I don't know if you know this or not, is illegal to import to the United States. Yeah, yeah, I knew it was. It's not. It's not code. So CBP has an automatic detain destroy order. So if they find Kratom, they don't have to have a hearing. If it's Kratom, it's getting burned, man. Right. I mean, that's just how it is. Okay. Um, so like, like, how are these people getting all this Kratom in the country labeled as Kratom? It's not. Okay, so that's one problem. Yeah. The other problem is it's not a dietary ingredient. So I mean, I mean, I mean, I guess if you made no claims and wanted to say people eat kratom as a food, and you just sold, you know, dehydrated kratom leaf powder, you know, madang red vein or whatever it is, um, you know, maybe that might be okay. I guess if you had, you know, robbed the supplement engineer's kratom farm in Idaho and grew your own kratom in America, that would be probably okay too, right? Yeah. But. I don't know how they're, 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 they're bringing it into this country and how they're selling it legally. And that's not to say that I don't think Kratom is valuable or safe or, you know, might, might actually really help a lot of people that, that, that are pretty desperate and, and might need that help. I'm right. just saying it, it's, it just surprised me. I walked into, yeah. you know, a store and they've got pouches. I guess they sell it by like, you know, 100 gram pouches on these. Put it in, it reminds me of like the old uh, chewing tobacco, you know, like, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, just the big, chew, like the yeah. yeah, right. And, or, or people steep it and make tea out of it. And I'm just surprised that I see it labeled as a dietary supplement. And I'm just scratching my head and I'm like, don't know how it got here and don't know why people think they can they can sell it as a dietary supplement, but they are. So, yeah. I mean, those are just, you know, and, 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 and Dan Fabrican's reply was, well, an NDIN has been filed for Kratom, but the FDA is refusing to review it. Okay, that's a problem. Okay, I agree. You know, stalling and dragging your feet is 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 unfair. But the bottom line is, it's still right now not legal to sell. Okay, sure. um, I sold. I was one of the first people to sell with some some some, some partners of mine uh, CBD gel caps. I, I had a product called Sativol if you look it up when it first came out. Okay, and then again because maybe I'm a little slow. Um, people were starting to make noise that maybe it's not legal to sell CBD as a dietary ingredient or dietary supplement. Yeah. So I, I, I took the product at the market. I just went through like two, but I think we sold, I don't even know, not much. Okay. I mean, you know, it was in a blister pack and a nice box and it had a marijuana leaf on it and it was had a, a druggy packaging stuff. And, and the material we bought was from a very reputable publicly traded company that makes really high end, you know, CBD products. Yeah. Uh, but I got nervous. And I pulled it. And now I've seen that, you know, nobody's really defined what, what CBD is, except the, the USPTO, who won't give you a trademark for 
anything that's CBD related because they give you that thing because they they consider it to be a drug. So that's what kind of spooked me too, is we applied for some trademarks. I applied for a Sadoval and they they denied it. I could show you the office action. They're like, you you can't register it under uh, international class five, which is dietary supplements. Mm -hmm. It's not. And I'm like, Oh, you know, yeah, that's what I'm like, wait a minute. If, If the USPTO thinks this, it's just a matter of time before, you know, FDA or somebody else comes. So I, I got out of that real quick. But now we see people selling Delta 8, even though there's warning letters for that and, yep. you know, other stuff too. So, um, you know, the, the people that are against the, the MPL, I, I get it. There needs to be better enforcement of the laws. The laws need to be clarified. But that still doesn't mean that an MPL would not benefit consumers. And I, I give the Canadians a lot of credit. I like their system, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well put, Bruce. I think we can, uh, we'll wrap things there. Right. Thank you for uh, being very generous with your time. Is there anything you want to plug or uh, say before we uh, put a bow in the package? And uh, the other thing just real briefly is, uh, you know, Hector, Tim and I are working on a couple of other ingredients um, due to the restrictions in China, China locking people down in areas where we get stuff made in labs. We're probably like four months, five months behind on stuff. We've got a couple of other things we hope to launch pretty soon uh, that are well substantiated. I love working with those two guys. There are some other people um, that are well known in the industry that are kind of coming on for some of these projects on a, uh, I guess you call it like a locum tenens kind of a thing. Just kind of a, mm-hmm. you know, we brought them in because they've got a particular expertise that could do something, so they're going to help KLZ out. Um, so we hope to have some more ingredients pretty soon, and hopefully we'll have our 3D pump breakthrough clinical trial uh, wrapped up enrollment wise by the end of the summer and maybe sometime in the early to middle of next year, we'll see it in a, you know, a, a decent journal. Um, and that's that. I hope that um, even if people who, who, who watch this whole 90 minute thing, you know, don't agree with me on, on a lot of things I said, or, you know, have a more, well, I don't want to say more libertarian, but that's what they're going to say. More libertarian outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't agree with me, at least appreciate the fact that I'm, I'm telling you how I see it. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong on a lot of these things. It, it's possible. I mean, I'm human. I make mistakes, too. But I'm, I'm giving you, a, you know, we'll call it the good faith effort. You know, I'm, I'm trying to tell you what I think right. as I think it. OK. And again, my position has evolved and it's still evolving, you know, over the years. And and, and, and hopefully, you know, as I wrote in the uh, NPI piece, I really hope that I can leave this industry uh, a little better than when when I answered it. That's kind of that. That would be a really good thing for me. I would be really happy about that. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. You guys have you guys. It's you today, but you know you, Rob and Lucas, have a really good uh, podcast that that definitely serves a, a useful purpose. I appreciate it, Bruce. Thank you for being generous with your time. And just anytime I get somebody that's got your level of experience and knowledge in the industry, it's it's just as much of like a masterclass and a joy for me to just kind of sit back and listen and pick your brain on certain things. So. I know the listeners are going to love this. Uh, just, you know, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, future Anytime to help you guys out, you know how to get a hold of me. You got to appreciate it, Bruce. Have a good day, guy. Take care. Bye.